Canon Press presents the weekly sermon from Christ Church, Moscow, Idaho. Copyright 2019. If you would like to find out more about Canon Press materials and products, please call 1-800-488-2034. For a complete list of our products or to order online, please visit our website at canonpress.com. Enjoy the sermon. And all of God's people said, Amen. Let's rise and worship our triune God. The Lord is risen. He is risen indeed. From Deuteronomy 10, verse 14. Indeed, heaven and the highest heavens belong to the Lord your God. Also the earth with all that is within it. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up unto the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, you are in heaven, high and lifted up, higher than our highest thoughts. You are holy and there is none beside you. You are creator and everything belongs to you. You are king from the highest heaven to the deepest crack in the ocean. We now ask that your kingdom would come. Your will will be done even in this service, in our singing and prayers, our confession of sin and in the preaching of the word. And so we worship you now, our Father, in the name of Jesus, who lives and reigns with you, and the Holy Spirit, world without end. And amen. Amen. And amen. Please be seated. Jeremiah the prophet told the Jewish exiles to seek the good of the city while they were in Babylon. And a few books later, we have several young men in Babylon taking Jeremiah's command to heart. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are seeking the good of the city. And it was exactly their desire to be faithful to Jeremiah and faithful to the Lord that got them into trouble. Apparently, some Babylonians didn't find their do-gooding to be all that good. Daniel was cast into the lion's den for disobeying Darius's edict that you can pray to no one except the king. And Daniel didn't just disobey the order, he defied it. He was praying with the windows wide open where everyone could see. He didn't shutter himself in and seek the city's good in private. He openly and brazenly flouted the king's edict. And the story is much the same with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. When King Nebuchadnezzar ordered the people to worship his massive golden image, whenever they heard the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the three men refused to bow down, even knowing the threat of the fiery furnace. Why? All these men firmly believed that the best good they could do for Babylon, for their city, was to worship the true God, regardless of the consequences, period. They would worship the true God. They are servants of the Most High God, and they will give their worship to no one else. We need Christian men and women like this. When the Supreme Court starts playing the horn, the pipe, the lyre, and unveils homosexual marriage, or that boys can become girls, or that murder is a woman's choice, you have 
your Shadrach moment. If you are a servant of the Most High God, you must not bow down and worship. You must defy the decree because you are seeking the good of the city. What city has God placed you in for you to seek its good? This may be geographically the city of Moscow or the city of your work or the city of your family or the city of your soul. Will you seek their good by worshiping the Lord Jesus, regardless of the consequences? If you are on a baseball team or at a work lunch and the dirty jokes start flying, don't close the windows to hide your allegiance to God. Don't be shamed and shudder your faith. Be like Daniel. When the tempting song of pornography or the violin of discontent starts playing, stand firm like Shadrach. Refuse to bow down and worship that lust, that bad attitude. Why? You are servants of the Most High God, and you worship Him alone. And let's meditate on these things as we prepare our hearts to confess our sins by singing, Create in me a clean heart, O God, on page 415. Amen. And if you are able, please kneel as we confess our sins to God. Deuteronomy 11, 16 and 17. Take heed to yourselves, lest your hearts be deceived, and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. Lest the Lord's anger be aroused against you, and he shut up the heavens so that there be no rain, and the land yield no produce, and you perish quickly from the good land which the Lord is giving you. Father, we confess the need for Christian men and women to be like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and to stand faithfully for you while others bow down and worship false gods. Far too often, we close the windows or obey the tolerance laws. While we may have reservations in our mind or unease in our gut, we still go along with the celebrations of sin, whether on the national level or in our movies, our jokes among our family. We fear standing out. We fear being reported. We fear the fiery furnace. Fill us with your spirit that we may boldly say we're going to obey God, whatever the consequences. We know that if we want right worship established in our public square, it must first be established by your people in your house. And so we confess our own compromises in worshiping you and our cowardice to stand for your truth. In doing this, we have been unfaithful to you and have failed to seek the real good of our country, our city, our families, our own souls. We confess this as our sin, and we now confess our individual sins to you and Selah. And we ask all of this in the name of your Son and our Savior, and amen. Please rise for the assurance of the Father's forgiveness. From Deuteronomy 11, Behold, I have set before you today a blessing and a curse. 
the blessing if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today. Christian, we have all bowed down to the statue. We have closed the windows and have feared to stand. All of us except one man, and that man is Jesus. He stood and refused to be cowed. He went into the fiery trial alone and was burned by the hot wrath of God, the full curse. And by this, he has secured your forgiveness. So hear the blessing of the Lord your God, that your sins are forgiven through Christ. And thanks be to God. Amen. The text this morning is Psalm 102. These are the words of God. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Let my cry come unto thee. Hide not thy face from me in the day when I am in trouble. Incline thine ear unto me in the day when I call. Answer me speedily. For my days are consumed like smoke, and my bones are burned as an hearth. My heart is smitten and withered like grass, so that I forget to eat my bread. By reason of the voice of my groaning, my bones cleave to my skin. I'm like a pelican of the wilderness. I'm like an owl of the desert. I watch and am as a sparrow alone on the housetop. Mine enemies reproach me all the day, and they that are mad against me are sworn against me. For I have eaten ashes like bread and mingled my drink with weeping. Because of thine indignation and thy wrath, for thou hast lifted me up and cast me down. My days are like a shadow that declineth, and I am withered like grass. But thou, O Lord, shalt endure forever, and thy remembrance unto all generations. Thou shalt arise and have mercy upon Zion, for the time to favor her, yea, the set time is come. For thy servants take pleasure in her stones and favor the dust thereof. So the heathen shall fear the name of the Lord and all the kings of the earth thy glory. When the Lord shall build up Zion, he shall appear in his glory. He will regard the prayer of the destitute and not despise their prayer. This shall be written for the generation to come, and the people which shall be created shall praise the Lord. For he that looked down... From the height of his sanctuary from heaven did the Lord behold the earth to hear the groaning of the prisoner, to loose those that are appointed to death, to declare the name of the Lord in Zion and his praise in Jerusalem. When the, Lord, when the people are gathered together in the kingdom to serve the Lord, he weakened, he weakened my strength in the way. He shortened my days. I said, O oh my God, take me not away in the midst of thy, my days. Thy years are throughout all generations. Of old hast thou laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of thy hands. They shall perish, but thou shalt endure. Yea, all of them shall wax old like a garment. As a vesture shalt thou change them, and they shall be changed. But thou art the same, and thy years shall have no end. The children of thy servants shall continue, and their seed shall be established before thee. Our Father and God, we thank you for this word to us. I pray that your spirit would be present in our midst, applying this word to our condition. I pray that you grant us the faith to believe and receive it as we ought. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. amen. So I want to talk... This week, I want to speak to you this week about what it is like when smoke prays. What it is like when smoke prays. We have in this psalm a prayer offered in the midst of desperate affliction. This is a psalm of affliction. The afflicted are those who feel most in need of answered prayer. The afflicted are those who feel like they need answered prayer the most. They are also those who feel like getting an answer is a true long shot. The more afflicted you are, the more unlikely you feel like it is that you're going to have your prayer 
heard, the more desperate the circumstances, the more of a long shot it seems, but the more desperate the circumstances, the more you need that long shot actually to come to pass. But affliction makes them eloquent anyhow, and it is the kind of eloquence that moves Jehovah. There is a kind of desperate eloquence in the mid, from the midst of affliction that moves Jehovah. Moreover, the fact that the affliction could be the result of our own sin doesn't really alter any of that. God loves the cry of the desolate. God loves to intervene on behalf of the desolate. God loves to answer this kind of prayer. Affliction is like uh, a storm. And there are times when your affliction is like a, a, rain, a particularly rainy February that is the one short little month, but is trying very hard to act like three months. So, so it's, it just goes on and on and on, just one overcast day after another, just one rainy day after another. There are other times when there's a short burst of an affliction, like a thunderstorm. It, there's a burst of affliction, and it happens, and it's over. There are other times, this, when it comes to weather, this is one of my favorites. When you look in the sky, it's one of those partly cloudy days. There are a couple of hundred clouds, each one half an acre, right? And plenty of blue in between all of them, and there's a high wind up there. And it's like a celestial toddler is playing with the light switch. You know, so it's shadowy, sunny, shadowy, sunny, shadowy, sunny. Maybe you have those sorts of weeks. Maybe you have that kind of back and forth. There's a good thing that happens, then a bad thing that happens, then a good thing that happens, then a bad thing. And then you're back and forth and you don't know, what do I do? Well, that, that is more pleasant than the long February. But in all cases, when it's overcast or when we're living in shadow or we're, when we're un, under some kind of affliction, when that is the case, we need to take the lessons from this psalm. So, this is a psalm of affliction, and so it begins with the cry of the psalmist asking that his plea come to God's attention. God, pay attention to me. I'm speaking to you now. Pay attention to my plea, verse 1. He asks that God not hide his face in this time of trouble, verse 2. God, don't this is no time for hide-and-seek. This is no time for you to be the inscrutable divine absence. I'm, I'm praying to you, and I need your attention. And the psalmist asks for swift intervention. And, and I'd remind you here that there's a, there's a holy, there, there's, a, there's a kind of impatience. Think of Israelites grumbling in the wilderness. There's a kind of impatience. There's a kind of murmuring. There's a kind of grumbling that God chastises, disciplines, God severe, deals with severely. There is also a holy kind of impatience that is modeled by the psalmist over and over and over again. This psalm represents a holy impatience, and when we're impatient for God to intervene on our behalf, he loves that kind of impatience. He wants us to be impatient with him in that holy way. Not grumbling, not complaining, not murmuring, but praying like the psalmist does here. God, don't hide from me. Don't run away. I'm, pr I'm praying to you. I need you, and I need you to intervene on my behalf swiftly. And don't let your doctrine um, lecture what you know. Your doctrine says, well, God knows best what I need, and so I'm just going to surrender it all and, and go be a stoic. 
God doesn't want you to be a stoic. God wants you to tell him what you're thinking. God wants you to tell him what you're thinking, what you're feeling, what you're going through. And if you want a swift intervention, then ask for a swift intervention. But don't murmur and complain if God says no. If you pray specifically, if you pray specifically, you're, getting, you're going to get a specific answer. All right, if you pray specifically, Lord, deliver me today, and that doesn't happen, it's going to be two, two days from now, three days from now, you know what the answer was to that first petition. Lord, deliver me today. The answer was no. And you can learn how to pray, and then you can come back like the import, importunate widow in the parable and bang on the door some more. God tells us to behave this way. God teaches us to come back like the psalmist. So the psalmist's days are like smoke, he says. His days are like smoke, and his bones are like cinders in a cold fireplace. He is not, he is not a happy person. He's having, he's having great difficulty. Verse 3, his heart has been cut down by a scythe, and it withers on the ground. Like a grassy meadow, scythe comes in, cuts his heart down, and is withering there on the ground. Verse 4, he loses his appetite. Also verse 4, his skeleton has skin stretched over it, and that's about all. Verse 5, he's lonely and deserted like an owl in the ruins. Verse 6, and he's like a solitary bird on a roof line somewhere. Verse 7, his enemies just won't let up. Verse 8, and his food and drink are ashes and tears. Verse 9, his enemies do this to him, but God is behind it all. Now, this is important. Thomas Watson once said, uh, we sometimes focus on who brings the trial to us and forget all about who sent the trial to us. God is the one who sends the trial. Whoever brings the trial might be in sin, might be godly, might be ungodly, might be in between. You know, you know whoever brings the trial, is that, that's just an instrument. Who is it that sent the trial? Well, the psalmist is dealing with that. His enemies are doing it to him, but God is behind it all. Verse 10. His days are a lengthening shadow, and he is like crisp brown grass. Verse 11. So the psalmist is in deep trouble here, and he knows that he's praying to a God who isn't in deep trouble. We need to always remember that God has absolutely no problems. God has absolutely no problems. None. God doesn't have bad days. God doesn't have overcast days. God is never in trouble. God is never thinking, oh no, what are we going to do now? The psalmist is in deep trouble, and he knows that he's praying to a God who isn't. He's praying to a God who isn't in that trouble. And this is why prayer makes sense. God will endure, and he will be remembered always. Verse 12, so the psalmist is saying, I'm in trouble, so that's why I'm not praying to me, right? I don't know the way out. That's why I'm not praying to me. I don't know what to do. That's why I'm not relying on my own resources. I'm praying that if I'm drowning in the river, I want to cry out to someone who's standing on the shore. I don't want to cry out to someone who's drowning along with me. I don't want God to be in trouble with me. There's no, there's no hope in that. There's no security in that. The psalmist is crying out to God who is not in trouble. So God will endure, and he's going to be remembered always. Verse 12, because Jehovah is forever, the restoration of Zion is inevitable. Verse 13, God's servants love her very bricks and show honor to the dust of her streets. Verse 14, we can see evidence of this human impulse in the Wailing Wall. The Wailing Wall is the retention wall for 
the second temple that was destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD. And people to this day gather at the Wailing Wall to weep and to pray at these stones. The stones of Jerusalem are precious to these people. So God's servants love her very bricks and they show honor to the dust of her streets. Verse 14, not only will Zion be restored, the heathen and their kings will notice the glory there. That's verses 15 and 16. God will regard the prayer of the desperate, verse 17. This is going to happen, the psalmist says, and God's people will praise him for it, verse 18. God peers over the balcony of the very highest heaven, and what does he regard down here? When God looks over the balcony of the very highest heaven, what does he see down here? He sees the groaning of the ones in the dungeons. That's what God sees. That's what God hears. So when God in the highest looks down on earth, he hears what's coming from the lowest. Verses 19 and 20. The God of highest heaven sees down to the lowest condition. You cannot say, well, God can't hear me. I'm too far away. The, the God of high heaven knows and has comforted many a saint in many a dungeon. So the God of the highest heaven sees down to the lowest condition. These are the ones who, when delivered, will declare the name of God, verse 21, and all together they will praise him. All together they will praise him. And God is the one who ordained all this. God is the one who has us go through this sort of thing. He brought, the, he brought in this time of great weakness, verse 23, and so the prayer is that God will not cut him off in the midst of the work, verse 24. So the psalmist is saying, I know you brought all this down on my head. I know you orchestrated all this. I know you brought all this to me. Please don't cut me off in the middle of it. Please deliver me. I'd like, I'd like to work through the whole story. God's work is forever, verse 24, and he is the one who created all things, verse 25. What he created will perish, while the creator himself will not. Verse 26, creation will wear out like an old pair of jeans, while God is constantly the same. Verse 27, and because God is constant in this way, the children of his servants will be like him, and not like the created order, which will necessarily wear out. Verse 28, there's an argument here that teaches us how to process affliction. There's an, order, uh, there's an order of premises that we need to learn how to assemble in order to enable us to, to know how to respond to God and to our circumstances rightly. Now, affliction is a grace. We are dealing with the grace of affliction. Affliction is a gift. Affliction is a gift, whether it's that long February or if it's a short sporadic um, difficulty, if it's a medical emergency that amounts to nothing more than a scare, or if it's a medical situation that is month after month, and what are we going to do? How, how are we to understand all our various afflictions? Scripture teaches us that God brings affliction into our lives. Affliction being defined here as something that you are overwhelmed by, something that you do not honestly believe you can handle. That's what a real affliction is. You are overwhelmed by something you do not have in good conscience. You cannot say, I'm up to this. And God does this in order to teach us how small we are. God does this because when, when we don't have affliction, we get full of ourselves. 
When we don't have affliction, we think we can conquer the world. When, when we don't have affliction, we believe that we, we're, we're capable of handling everything because everything that comes at us, we, it feels like we're handling. Everything, you know, my digestion's good, the sun's shining, the birds are chirping, everything's good. Look at, look how much masterful control I have over the world. You have no masterful control over the world. You're just being blessed. You're just fortunate, right? So God wants to teach us how small we are. He gives us particular things that we cannot handle to teach us the important lesson that we cannot really handle anything. God gives us particular things that we cannot handle in order to teach us that we are not really handling anything about our lives. All of life, which we cannot handle, is divided into two categories. That which we know we cannot handle and that which we erroneously believe we can handle. All right. we, we divide our lives up. Well, I know I can't handle that, but I can, I can do the daily routine that I, I enjoyed for the last three months. No, for the last three months, you were kidding yourself. You, you're like the kid, uh, you know, those little... Um, I don't know they have them anymore. They used to have little rocket ships and ponies and stuff in front of supermarkets or little driving cars. You put a toddler in, you put a quarter in, and it bounces around, and, and the child is turning the steering wheel uh, full of exuberance. I'm driving a car. No, you're not driving a car. You're not driving a car. That's you in your life, right? I'm driving a car. No, you're not driving a, no, you're not driving a car. So... God arranges visits to the first category. There's, there's the stuff we know we cannot handle and the stuff we think we can handle, but we can't. God arranges visits to the first category to remind us that it is all the first category. God reminds us that our lives are a mist. We are walking on a knife's edge all the time. God is being kind to us all the time. How many diseases is your body fighting off right now? What, what functions are the various organs in your body doing for you right now? You have no idea. And, and then when something goes wrong, when you get sick, when something goes wrong and you get sick and you say, oh, look, something went wrong, we're, we're oblivious to all the good things that God is doing for us all the time. So why does God do this sort of thing to us? It's not because he's sadistic. He has our best interest in mind. He has his glory in mind and our best interest in mind. He does this kind of thing to us because we desperately need it. Our troubles are hand-stitched for us. Our troubles are hand-stitched for us. And they fit the outline of our lives perfectly. They fit the outline of our lives perfectly. But we had, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1.9, but we have the sentence of death in ourselves that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God, which raiseth the dead. This is it in a nutshell, that we should not trust in ourselves. Why did God bring the apostle into all the great difficulties that he had? Shipwrecks, stonings, imprisonments. Why did God do that to Paul? Because Paul needed to learn the lesson that we ought not to trust in ourselves. Paul needed to learn that. Now, if the Apostle Paul, the writer of the majority of the New Testament, needed to have regular afflictions in his life so that he would learn the lesson not to trust in himself, how much more do we need that same lesson? But if we cease trusting in our own abilities, because we know that in our own ability we cannot rise from the dead, what must we do? We must trust in somebody else who can raise the dead. There's somebody else that we trust in is someone who can raise the dead.
And we have to realize that apart from his grace, we are always, quote unquote, dead. We are incapable of delivering ourselves from our good times, right? There are all sorts of hazards and dangers in our good times that we can't, we can't process. God is, is surrounding us, giving good things to us. And then when he shows us how close it is, and when he shows us how close danger is, and we, he reveals something to us, that's something we're seeing that's going on all the time. And God is teaching us that this is his goodness to us. So I want you to follow the logic of the psalmist here. There's a faithful logic in affliction. There is a faithful logic that is to be pursued in affliction. The psalmist here is at the bottom trench of all his troubles. He is under a pile, which he describes in exquisite detail. I'm praying like smoke. I'm, I'm like cinders in the fireplace. I'm, uh, I'm like a, uh, an owl in the ruins. This is, I'm not, um, this, is, this is not a psalm of joy. He is a flitting shadow. But he then turns to describe God. I'm a shadow. I'm a problem. I have problems. I am nothing but problems. He then turns to describe God in verse 12. He then says, but thou, O Lord, shalt endure forever. But thou, O Lord, shalt endure forever. Here's the logic running hard on a straight line, like a well-hit line drive. Number one, I'm a little wisp of smoke. I'm a little wisp of smoke, verse three. That's what I am. God, number two, God is eternal. God is eternal, verse 12. Number three, because his character is constant, Zion will be restored. I'm in trouble, number one. God is constant, number two. Zion, God's people collectively are going to be restored, verse 13. Number four, when Zion is restored, God will regard the prayer of the destitute, verse 17. When smoke prays, God listens. When smoke prays, God listens. Number five, I am among the destitute. I am smoke. Do not take me off in the midst of this trouble of mine. Verse 20, 24. So work through those five things again. I'm a, little wisp of, I'm a little wisp of smoke, number one. Number two, God is eternal. Number three, because his character is constant, Zion is going to be restored. God is going to be faithful to his people. He is going to restore them. Number four, when Zion is restored, God is going to hear the prayer of the destitute. When God's people collectively are restored, then God is going to hear the prayer of the destitute. And then number five, I am among those who are destitute. And that is when my prayer is going to be answered. Lord, let me, don't take me off now. Let me, let me see that time. Let me see that day. Luther once wrote that much religion lies in the pronouns. Much religion lies in the pronouns. This is my God, and so this is my promise. I am his smoke. I'm smoke, that's all I am, I'm smoke. But I'm his smoke, and I bear the image of God, and he has given me his promise. This psalm, at the conclusion of this psalm, we have a passage that is quoted by the author of the uh, book of Hebrews at, in Hebrews chapter one. The first chapter, the first chapter of the epistle to the Hebrews seeks to show that the Son of God is much greater than the angels. 
God says things to him that he never says to angels. That's Hebrews 1, 5, 5 and 6. He declares that the angels are simply ministering spirits, Hebrews 1, 7. But of the Son, he says, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. This is God speaking to the Son. When God speaks to the Son, what does God say to the Son? God says, thy throne, O God. Jesus is identified by God as God, and there's only one God. Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of thy kingdom is a right scepter. That's Psalm 45, verse 6. In addition, God speaks these words from the conclusion of this Psalm, 102, and God speaks these words from 102 to the Son. God says to the Son, of old hast thou laid the foundation of the earth. God says of the Son that he is the creator of all things. God says to the Son, of old you laid the foundation of the earth. Although the creation will grow threadbare, the sun is the same yesterday, today, and forever, as it says in Hebrews 13, verse 8. So what does that mean? It means that we are praying to one who is outside our troubles, but who understands our troubles. He's outside our troubles. He's the one who made this world. He's the one who knew that when Adam rebelled, this world would be plunged into trouble. Nothing surprised him. The Lamb of God, it says in Revelation, was slain before the foundation of the world. God had a way of redemption prepared from the very beginning. God knew. God created this world. He knew what it was like. God knew what it would be like when it plunged into darkness. God knew what sin would do to us. It would work us over. He knew all of that. And he is the one we pray to. He is the one we cry out to. So while we, it's, it's very important for us to understand that when we are praying in the middle of affliction, we are not one drowning swimmer praying to another drowning swimmer. We are praying to the one who is going to deliver us. We are praying to the one who is going to keep his covenant word. And while we believe in the doctrine of covenantal succession, that, uh, and that doctrine being that Christian parents are invited to believe God for the salvation of their children, let us never forget that this doctrine finds its fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ, as do all life-giving doctrines. Who is God talking to? Hebrews 1 tells us that in this passage at the tail end, at the tail end of Psalm 102, Hebrews 1 tells us that God is talking to the Son. Of old, verse 25, of old hast thou laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of thy hands. They shall perish, but thou shalt endure. God says to the Son, they will perish. The created order is going to perish. The created order is going to wear out and it's going to be resurrected again and it's going to, uh, it is going to be what it has always been, contingent. God is a necessary being. The created order is contingent. That means, uh, to say that the created order is contingent means that it need not exist. It need not be there. God necessarily exists. God could not not be, be there. God could not not exist. The created order could not exist. Its continued existence is dependent on the will of God. So even in the resurrected state, even in the resurrected state, we're still going to be contingent beings. And we're going to be contingent beings whose continued existence rests upon a necessary being, God, 
the son. And so this is what the father says to the son. You are the one who created all things. It says in John chapter one, Colossians one, Hebrews one, Jesus is the creator. Jesus is the creator God. So what, is the, what does God say to him? In verse 28, God says to Jesus, the children of thy servants shall continue. The servants of thy, the children of thy servants shall continue and their seed shall be established before thee. Verse 28, everything coheres in Christ. Everything co coheres together in Christ. Everything hangs together in Christ. And outside of him, everything comes apart in our hands. So why does God let things come apart in our hands? So that we might learn that and not from a book. God wants us to learn that in our experience. God wants us to taste the fact that our lives are smoke. He wants us not to just say yes uh, as, as though it's a rote catechism answer. Nothing wrong with catechisms. Catechisms are great. Catechisms are just teaching. But it's possible to have rote answers, right, where you just... It's like a parrot-like answer. We don't want parrot-like answers, even if the parrot-like answers come straight from this book. God wants it to come from the book, from his word, and from the heart. And it's not going to come from the heart until we feel the pinch. Right? If we feel the pinch, we're going to feel the deliverance. If we never feel the pinch, we are never going to feel delivered. If we never feel the curse of the law, we're not going to feel the blessing of the gospel. That's how God wants us to function. God does not want us to live in his welfare state where everything goes right, nothing ever goes wrong. If in a world of sin, in a world where people are tempted to be self-absorbed and self-centered, what would happen to someone who never had a bad thing happen? What would happen to a self-centered person, an idolater, who never had anything bad happen to him? What would happen to that person? It would be like, uh, a five-year-old boy, boy <clears throat> with no nerve endings. He'd destroy himself, right? He would absolutely destroy himself. If he couldn't feel pain, if he couldn't get negative feedback, he would totally wreck himself. God allows us to get into trouble. God leads us into trouble. And we're told in the Lord's Prayer to pray, Lord, not have it be too much. Don't, don't have it be too much trouble. Don't have it be more than I can handle. But the Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So when, um, when God arranges our circumstances where an affliction comes, a difficulty arises, a temptation arises, that is in, at some level, in some, uh, in some way, that is from God. That is from God. And when it's from God, it is for a purpose. If it is from God, it is for a purpose. God does not hand stitch everyone's afflictions in the world except for yours. And then you just got the leftovers, you know, whatever. I've got three, I've got three broken bones and two cancers and let's just, throw, let's just throw them down there. No, he hand stitches everything. Everything is absolutely suited to your frame. Your afflictions are not a mismatch to your frame. Let me say that again. Your afflictions are not a mismatch. But you say, how can it not be a mismatch? Because I'm, over, I'm totally overwhelmed by them. Well, yes, that's the point. That's why it's not a mismatch, right? If, you, if, if, if the affliction came to you and you said, oh, I've got this. Oh, I've got that. 
oh, I've got that third one. That's a mismatch. Right? That is a mismatch. It's not a, a well-fitted affliction unless it overwhelms you. When it overwhelms you, then you have to say, I have this problem and God doesn't. I have this problem and God doesn't. I care about this in a way that God doesn't care, right? God doesn't care about the way I do. God, God cares for me, but God, uh, it says uh, in Peter, cast all your anxieties, cast all your anxieties on him for he cares for you. But he, he, he cares for you. He doesn't care about the affliction any more than the, uh, the, the surgeon, when the surgeon puts you under the knife and, the, and he's about to cut into you, the surgeon doesn't look at the knife and say, oh, and go white. Oh, <laughs> that's sharp. The, that's his instrument. He's not scared by the knife. He doesn't care about the knife. He cares about you. And the sooner we come to realize that his purpose is the one who orchestrates all of this, who governs all of this and does so perfectly, when we are able to say, whatever my affliction is, whatever it is, God, you have done all things well. All things, including this, including my last Tuesday. My last Tuesday was a bad Tuesday. I was a cinder on a hearth, smoke praying in the wind. I was, I, everything the psalmist is talking about. And you orchestrated that perfectly. You did it right. God does all things well. God does all things well. Now, why does he do this? So that we could come to the point where we say, God does all things well. And you muffed that last Tuesday. So he says, okay, we've got plenty of more Tuesdays. We got more, com we got more coming. You obviously need practice. <laughs> you obviously need Troubles and afflictions are disciplinary, not punitive. They are disciplinary, not punitive. The difference between pun punishment, when the magistrate executes a, a criminal for um, a murder, the magistrate is not trying to make that criminal better. It might make him better. He might repent before he's executed, but that's not the point. The point is simple justice. The point is retributive. The point is you have forfeited your life because you've done this bad thing. A parent spanking a child is disciplining. The whole point is to correct behavior. And as soon as the behavior and as soon as the attitude is corrected, the discipline can be done. And if the discipline keeps on, rejoice. It says God scourges every son he receives. He disciplines everyone he loves. And that means that we have more to learn. We have and we need to Take it and say, God, you're perfect. You haven't done anything wrong in any of this. I do all kinds of things wrong. And the worst of it is I, on, I only know a third of it. So teach me. Use, this, use these afflictions to teach me what I need to know. And the, and, and the affliction teaches me the lesson that God has no afflictions. God has no afflictions. He has, as Corey Ten Boom once put it, God has no problems, only plans. God has no problems, only plans. And his plans for you, all of you, are for good and not for evil. Our Father and God, we thank you for your kindness to us. We thank you for this psalm. We thank you for how you deal with your people so kindly. Even though it seems rough to us, even though it seems hard to us, we thank you for your kindness and your tender mercy that extends from generation to generation. Psalm 102 is the prayer from a Christian who is in the middle of desperate 
affliction. The title of the psalm reads, A Prayer of the Afflicted, when he is overwhelmed and pours out his complaint before the Lord. The trouble makes the psalmist lose his appetite. He forgets to eat his bread. And even if he does remember, all that he has to eat is ashes for his bread and tears mingled with his drink. He has a meal of affliction before him. The last supper that Jesus had with his disciples was in one sense a meal of affliction. If you remember when they had gathered to celebrate the Passover with unleavened bread, Moses calls this bread the bread of affliction. When Israel ate the bread of affliction at Passover, they were to remember the affliction of 400 years of slavery, the affliction God poured out on Pharaoh in judgment, the affliction of the Passover lamb for their deliverance. So at the Passover meal, Jesus took the bread of, the, of affliction and said, this is my body, which is broken for you. He ate the bread and soon his body would be afflicted and broken. And then he drank the cup that would soon be mingled with his tears. The last Passover was a meal of affliction for Jesus. The Lamb of God was about to be slain. His body broken like bread, his blood poured out like wine. It was a table of affliction. But now, no longer. God's wrath has been fully poured out on his son. His indignation has been taken away, and Jesus is alive. Christ's table of affliction has now become a table for the afflicted. Are you afflicted? Do you feel like you are eating ash and drinking tears? Are you sick and your body feels withered like grass? Are you lonely like an owl in the desert? Christian, are you in affliction? Then come, this meal is prepared for you. Come and welcome to Jesus. Amen. Amen. So the charge is this, it is to remember and rejoice that God is a God of all weather, all kinds of weather, whether it's 72 degrees out and it's a bluebird day, or the doldrums of February, or the flash floods, or the scorching hot August days. God is control of all kinds of weather. And that should do a few things when you remember that. First of all, it should make you realize that you are not in control, right? You cannot keep all those little raindrops up in heaven. Your worrying won't drive away the clouds. But also remember that God is in control. He is your shelter. He is your refuge. You turn to him and he will keep you. Now receive with believing hearts the Lord's benediction. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be the glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. And all God's people said, amen. amen.